0: Well, I wonder, do you think you have a clear understanding of the resurrection? Um, Easter is a great celebration, isn't it, of the resurrection? We sing about God risen, conqu- risen, conquering Son, and proclaim Christ is risen. He's risen a bit slow there, what you got there. <laughs> but what do we mean by Christ is risen? After all, bread rises, doesn't it? Um, floods rise, temperature rises. If I tell you to rise, you'll just stand up. What do we mean by Jesus rising from the dead? To rise is a very simple word, it's a very simple verb, but what does it actually mean to rise from the dead? I remember many years ago, before even I was a vicar, so a long, long time ago, before any of my children were born, I was teaching at a, a school Bible club, and I said something along the lines of, we're talking about Easter, no one else has ever come back from the dead as Jesus. And one of the children said, my grandma came back from the dead. And I thought, what's she going on about? <laughs> Is something strange happened I've never heard of? Of course, when I investigated a bit further and spoke to the child afterwards, she told me how um, her grandma had been dead on the operating table. Now the doctors had brought her back from the dead. Is that what we mean by Jesus rising from the dead? And then when you begin to think about it, actually, the Bible's full of people rising from... Well, not full of people, but there's quite a number of people rising from the dead, isn't there? Um, we've had stories of Elijah, and we'll have a story of Elisha, both who raised someone from the dead. Uh, Peter raises someone from the dead in Acts, and Paul raises someone from the dead, and Jesus, of course, raises three people from the dead, at least three that we know about. Um, Jairus's daughter, we're told about in Mark and Matthew's Gospel, was raised from the dead, a 12-year-old girl. Um, the widow of Nain's son, um, we're told about in Luke... Was brought back from the dead as um, he was carried into nain and of course in john's gospel we're told of lazarus um, jesus friend dead for four days so dead that when he, jesus told him to open the tomb they said don't do that it'll smell um jesus brought him back from the dead and yet none of those none of those people being risen from the dead none of the people coming back to life um, are treated in anywhere near the same way as the resurrection of Jesus. They're not seen as earth-shattering or, or, or radically changing the whole makeup of who we are as Christians and, and what the world's about. And yet Jesus' resurrection is. This is something different. It's not, someone just, just, it's not just someone coming back to life. The Bible is making a much greater claim about Jesus. A claim that we can easily miss when we just simply use the word, He's risen even if we had a hallelujah. But what does it mean? What, what really has happened with Jesus? In a sense, this is part of the issue for the disciples because you could get to, before our passage, um, sort of halfway through Luke chapter 24, um, the two come back from the road to Emmaus and they go back to Jerusalem, really excited, they've seen Jesus, they meet up with the other disciples and they're told that Peter's seen Jesus as well. Interestingly, we're never given the story of Jesus and Peter meeting with Jesus in any of the Gospels, we're just told about it, but... Here yeah, we're told it's happened. Um, and they'll say, Look, in verse 34, they'll say, It's true, the Lord has risen. He's risen indeed, hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> and they're excited about it. They seem they seem to have got it, they seem to have understood that something amazing and wonderful has happened. And then Jesus appears in their midst in verse 36. It so says, Stood among them. We don't know if sort of he magically appeared or you walked through the door. It's not quite clear in Luke, but there's a, something strange about it, isn't there? Um, and he says simply Peace be with you. And don't you think it's odd how the disciples respond? In verse 35, 37. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. They didn't say, Oh, hi, Jesus. We'd heard that you'd risen from the dead. It's great to see you again. How are you doing? No, they were terrified. Something very strange, something very odd is going on here. And what Luke goes on to show us in these few verses is actually Jesus trying to help his disciples come to a much deeper, much clearer, if still odd, understanding of what the resurrection is. Yes, they've said Jesus is risen. Yes, they've understood that Jesus has appeared. Yes, they've understood that the tomb is empty. And yet there's still more they need to understand. There's still more they need to grasp about what it means that Jesus has risen from the dead. And in Luke, this, this passage here helps, shows us how Jesus helped the disciples to understand. And so Luke wants to help us to understand what really was going on there, at least as much as we can do. And the struggle of the disciples comes across really clearly here. Um, So it says in verse 37, they were frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. Then Jesus says to them, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your minds? So they're (sighs) they're frightened. There's doubts rising in their minds. There's troubles. And and then a bit later on, um, it says that they... It's quite a strange phrase um, in... Get the right verse. Verse 41. And while they still did not believe... Because of joy and amazement, he asked them. Do, do you get that? That they were terrified, they were doubting, they were troubled, they were joyful, they were unbelieving, they were amazed. What, what a mix of emotions Luke describes here. It's a sense of that the disciples really struggling both emotionally and intellectually to understand what on earth was going on here. Uh, and yet this is. This is not what you'd expect. Surely they understood by this point that Jesus is risen. Surely they just want to say, Hi, Jesus, welcome. And I don't know if you've seen TV um, um, dramatizations of the resurrection. There was one on the BBC a few years ago. And every time Jesus appeared, he he smiled a warm smile, and everyone looked happy and relaxed and at peace and graceful. But that's not what's described here. These disciples are completely and utterly at sea. So, so first of all, Jesus gets them to look closely to see who he really is. He says to them, See that I am flesh and blood. Look at my flesh, my bones. Look at the feet and hands, presumably still with the marks and nails of the nails in them, as John's gospel makes clear. Ask. Sorry. And when he still struggled to really understand that Jesus is physically fully there, he asked them for some food. And they give him some food to eat. Perhaps there's nothing more real, more physical, more engaging than sitting down with someone and actually sharing a meal with them or watching them eat. Surely this isn't a ghost. Surely this is a bodily resurrection. Surely Jesus is bodily here. This is not some strange spiritual experience. But why does Jesus want to make it so clear that he has physically been risen from the dead? Well, there's various arguments, even around today, against the resurrection. Um, I had a quick look online. It's always good to look online, isn't it? I'd say most of the the, um, blog articles online were by Christians trying to debunk (laughs) um, false views of the resurrection. But I did try to find one or two that were by non-Christians and have a look at them. And one of the arguments around at the moment is that it was all a hallucination. Now, hallucinations are very popular these days, aren't they? Particularly students at uh, college taking drugs and so on. Um, but it's an idea very popular in the 19th century and it's an idea that's become very popular again recently. Um, one guy called Liderman apparently concludes that hallucinatory visions are required um, to explain all this along with auditory, auditory features that produce a stimulus, enthusiasm... Religious intoxication and ecstasy for Peter. So in some sense that Peter was completely emotionally overwrought, maybe because of the, the grief and all he's gone through. Uh, and somehow Peter's enthusiasm and what he claimed he had seen spread to the other disciples by an incomparable chain reaction. So that in the end, Paul, the other apostles, 500 persons, and James all had similar experiences of visions of who Jesus was. A kind of mass ecstasy. A great spiritual experience. Now, you might not agree that that's possible. There's quite a debate about whether you can have a mass hallucination of the same thing. Um, some people argue that does happen. You can talk about some of the what might happen at some of the Roman Catholic places where they claim that they see Mary weeping and so on. Maybe that sort of thing does happen. But does it fit with what happens here in Luke 24? A vision doesn't ask you for fish grab it and eat it. This is a real physical experience, not a hallucination. Do you see why Luke's so keen to make it clear? Do you see why Jesus is so keen to help the disciples really understand what they're engaging with here, what they're, they're, they're tackling here? This is Jesus physically, bodily with them. A similar argument is that um, actually all the disciples saw was some spiritual visions of Jesus, and certainly that's true of some people in Acts, isn't it? You think about Stephen when he's about to be stoned. He looks up to heaven and he sees Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. He has a great spiritual vision of Jesus in heaven. And Paul, Paul or Saul on the road to Damascus, he has a great vision of Jesus from heaven. Um, they, they see Jesus alive. They see Jesus in his place. But they're not experiencing the resurrection in quite the same way as the disciples here. And some people say, well, maybe what's described here is, is this, this, that kind of spiritual vision. Um, Maybe that's the sort of vision that the earliest Christians had and that later on somehow they, um, as the tradition grew, they add in this idea of a bodily resurrection. And the idea of visions of gods was not at all unusual. It was a cultural commonplace apparently in those days. And many people would argue that that was what was going on here. And yet what Luke writes here, It's clear that the disciples aren't just having a spiritual vision. Yes, there's something very strange happening. Yes, there's some spiritual, this is definitely a spiritual experience, but, but Jesus is physically there. He says, look at my flesh and my bones. Give me something to eat. This is not just a vision. This is a physical, actual happening. It's part of creation. It's part of the world we live in. This is Jesus with us. And some people say, well, maybe it was just a resuscitation. That is, someone brought back from the dead to live a bit longer. Someone like Lazarus, like the widow of Nain's son, like Jairus' daughter. And they say those sorts of stories were around in those days. Um, there's the Greek god Asclepius. I'm probably saying that wrong. Um, the ancient god of healing. He was renowned for raising people from the dead. Couldn't the disciples just be copying that idea and claiming it happened to Jesus as well? And you could say that couldn't you but actually this what happens in luke 24 doesn't really quite even fit a simple resuscitation this is jesus physically bodily there his body's missing from the tomb he's eating fish and sitting with them and yet something else is going on here isn't there isn't it the fact that the disciples treat him so strangely and react to him in such a weird way there's a sense that something else is going on here. something else about jesus that they can't quite grasp or quite understand. You, you wouldn't imagine if they met Lazarus having come out of a tomb having the same sort of reaction, would you? They'd pretty welcome him. Maybe not hug him, because they might already he smelled a bit, but um, they'd welcome him and greet him. And yet here they're startled and frightened. The thing about Jesus, that although he's physically there, is different. It's beyond nature and yet natural at the same time. And, of course, the story of Emmaus picks up on some strange details as well, doesn't it? They, the people didn't recognize Jesus. They were kept from seeing who he was. All that journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. It wasn't until he broke bread that they, began to, they saw who he was. And then it says he disappeared from them. Again, some very strange things going on. This, Jesus is bodily resurrected. He's, he's come alive again. But it's not, the same. it's not like a resuscitation. It's not like someone coming back from the dead on an operating table. In fact, actually, the more you look at the details of the story, as recounted by Luke and the other Gospels, the stranger the story is. There's something very odd going on here. And yet, in a, in a sense, the strangeness is the point. We can't the strangeness is that we can't relate it to anything else in our experience. It, we can't really relate it to a resuscitation, we can't really relate it to the idea of a ghost. Common as both those ideas are, there's something different happening here. And that means that this is unlikely to be a story that anyone would make up. Luke's writing what happens, not explaining it, not saying it was like anything else, because it wasn't like anything else. This was a unique event. It's not something you make up, it's totally unique. But that's the point. Jesus' resurrection is totally unique in history. It's not true to say that he was the only one to come back from the dead. But it is true to say that he was the only one who was resurrected like this. So what on earth does this mean? What was going on here? Well, once Jesus has convinced the disciples that he is physically there, he then turns to Scripture and to the Old Testament to try and explain what was going on. Um, He wants them to see that this is God's plan revealed in Scripture. And we're told that he goes on, he talks about the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. It's basically the whole of the Old Testament. Um, Obviously, he didn't go through every detail in the Old Testament. But he must have picked up quite a swathe of different things. And it would be wonderful, wouldn't it, to have the whole list of that um, written down for us. But obviously, Luke was running out of space and time. um, And our Bibles had become much more um, heavier we had to look at it. And he's saying that in the Old Testament, there's this path, this threefold plan. That the Messiah, i.e., Jesus, would suffer, which means we know he died on the cross, would rise, which means he was resurrected from the dead. And then there's a third point. Sermons always have a third point, don't they? But the third point is important. The third point is not only would Jesus die and rise again, but that a message of forgiveness for people that repent and turn to him. Will be preached throughout the nations. You might say, well, is that, why does that come in the Old Testament? Well, I haven't got time to go through all the details, but if we turn to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is easy to find. You just go to the middle of your Bibles and you'll find the Psalms, Then you look for one that's got 22 at the top. It's a long Psalm, uh, and it, this doesn't give, give us all three points clearly, but it, gives, um, it does give us all three points, I think. So, Psalm 22, first of all, talks about the suffering. And actually, the details in the first half of the Psalm, you're pretty aware of this, uh, really reflect the details of the cross. So, Jesus on the cross cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's the first verse of Psalm 22. Um, while he's on the cross, people mock him and they say, You know, if, if you saved yourself, why, if you saved others, why can't you save yourself? Why can't God save you? Um, something very similar said in um, Psalm 22, in verse 8, they say to him, he trusts in the Lord, they say, let the Lord rescue him, let him deliver him, since he delights in him. There's a sense of, you know, why can't he deliver him? Um, in verse 16, it talks about his hands and his feet being pierced. His says, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me, they pierce my hands and my feet. Well, that's quite a description of the cross. And then in verse 18, it says, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. All the Gospels give us that detail, don't they? of The happening at the cross. Psalm 22, obviously originally written by David to reflect some of his experiences, and yet somehow more deeply and more fully and more literally fulfilled in the death of Jesus Christ. But then the psalm doesn't finish there. In Verses 19 to 21, um, the writer calls out to God to save him. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. And then in, in anticipation of that salvation, we might say of the rising from the dead, um, in verses 22 onwards, it goes on to say, I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. Um, in other words, God will save me, and then I will praise God as a result. Uh, and then it goes on in verse 20, 31 to say, right at the end of the passage, they, others, will proclaim God's righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. So that the message will go out. There'll be suffering, there'll be salvation and praise, but the message of praise will go out further and further. Again, not all the details there, but quite the you see the pattern flowing through, the threefold pattern, suffering, salvation, and proclamation. Um, or we could refer to Zechariah that we talked about last Sunday evening. In Zechariah, it talks about, in chapter 12, verse 10, it, it talks about, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. Again, the one they had pierced. And Luke explicitly talks about the fact they were mourning. Did you see that in our first reading? They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. That's Zechariah 12:10 a few goes on a bit more about grieving and mourning and in verse chapter 13 verse 1 says, On that day a fountain will be opened in the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Do you get the message of forgiveness going out? These are just a couple of passages in the Old Testament. I haven't got time to go into any more. But God's plan is scripture. It's this idea of suffering. um, Suffering for a cause. Rising again and then the proclamation going out. And so for us as Christians, we need to see that actually God's plan was, yes, for Jesus to come and die. For Jesus to come and rise. But that God's plan is still in action. God's plan is still working. The message still needs to be preached that Jesus died and rose and that forgiveness of sins is available. That was the role of the first disciples as witnesses to what they'd seen. And that is our role as we carry on that witness, as we carry on that message, um, as we take what is written by Luke and others in the Gospels and tell people the wonderful good news of the death and resurrection and the forgiveness of sins that is available. One of the critics I read on the internet said this, and this leads me to one final reason why I don't buy the resurrection story, See into it. He says this, no wise or compassionate God would demand this from us. Such a God would not leave us so poorly informed about something so important. If we have a message for someone that is urgently vital for their survival, and we have, have any compassion, that compassion will com- compel us to communicate that message clearly and with every necessary proof. But don't you see what luke's saying the church's role is to take what god has done for the salvation of people and to communicate it clearly to offer the proof to show the people and that's our role as a church that's our role as god's people Yes, it takes wisdom about how we do that, how we engage with people. Yes, it's a communal thing. We don't want to put pressure on each individual to do what they're maybe not gifted to do. But as a community, as a church, we must keep hold of this fundamental purpose that we have. To proclaim the message of good news. That people might repent and turn to the risen Jesus for salvation. And that's what the early Christians did. When you go into Acts, um, the first verse of Acts says, in my book, former book, Theophilus, so you know, all know that Acts is Luke's second part. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Of course, then Jesus goes up to heaven. But the point is that Jesus be, carries on his work through the apostles, through the Christian church. And what is the work that they're fundamentally about in Acts? Spreading the word telling people about the death and resurrection of Jesus and calling them to repent for the forgiveness of sins. And actually, probably the the clearest example of Peter doing exactly what Jesus calls him to do here is when Peter goes and preaches his first sermon to a non-Jew, to the nations, to Cornelius. He says this, we are witnesses. That picks up on what Jesus says, you are to be witnesses. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country, of the Jews, and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. They they saw him. They were witnesses of that. He was not seen by all people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, i.e. the apostles. By us, and get this detail, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead that that important detail in there ate and drank it wasn't just a spiritual vision this was actually a physical meeting with and eating and drinking with he commanded us to preach that's what jesus says here in luke 24 to the people and to testify that he is the one whom god appointed as judge of the living and the dead all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Do you see how Peter's sermon there matches so closely what Jesus tells him to do in Luke 24? And here he is, preaching to Cornelius, the first Gentile of all nations. It actually took Peter to Acts chapter 10 to realise he had to go to to the Gentiles as well as the Jews, and with a lot of prodding from God. But he got there in the end. He was fulfilling Jesus' call. And the question for us this Easter Sunday in 2019 is will we seek to fulfill that call as well that others may know the resurrected Jesus? Let's pray.